Welcome to the Somerset Emotional Wellbeing Podcast. My name is Dr. Andrew Trusilla from NHS Somerset, and I'm joined by my friend and colleague. Hi, I'm Dr. Sarah Coop. I'm a former GP and a medical educator and a coach. So really good to be here with you, Andrew, again. And that's great, Sarah, because actually you're going to be our guest today, or at least it's an area that you know far more about than I. Uh, we're going to be talking about crucial conversations. We are. Yeah, this is a, a topic that I think we've sort of touched on when we've had some informal conversations, haven't we? And just um, talked about it. And it's a book that I read. So it's called Crucial Conversations by um, Grenny, Patterson, Macmillan, Switzler and Gregory, if anyone wants to look it up. And it's a book that I found probably about three or four years ago. And for me, it just summarised, I won't go into too much detail now, but summarised a lot of the principles I'd learned around difficult conversations. And I think I sent you a copy, didn't I, Andrew? So we thought it maybe would be good for us to to chat, chat through it and just sort of see what we've learned and what we can share with our listeners. Absolutely right. And uh, I remember years ago, there was a book I read called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by uh, Stephen Covey. And he talks about one of his habits is seek first to understand and then to be understood. And I don't know where that fits into the the crucial conversations um, journey, but, but that was his advice. And he didn't go into it much more than that. Yeah, there's a really good point. Shall we, if we define a crucial, crucial conversation as per the book, from my understanding of reading the book, it's when there's three things. It's when opinions differ, when there's a lot at stake, so stakes run high, and when emotions are pretty strong. So there's like three aspects to a crucial conversation. Difference of opinion, um, emotions pretty strong, and a lot at stake. So I think that's the definition of a crucial conversation. So I think Stephen Covey's principle of seeking first to understand um, before then being understood really fits into one of the communication skills, because this book is all about communication skills in those difficult conversations. I add an extra bit into that. Um, it's seek first to understand, show that you've understood before then Ooh, yes. seeking to be understood. Um, so and I making think, sure that it's a good dialogue. And so both of you are not only on the same uh, wavelength, but you each appreciate that the other is on the same wavelength and the communication is two-way, not just words, but feelings as well. That's really cru That's really crucial, isn't it? I mean, Andrew, if you were to define what crucial conversation means for you, what sort of, what sort of themes would you say would come under that umbrella? Um, exactly what you've already said, um, but it's, it's high stakes, um, pivotal one, when emotions are high. So, you know, in the family situation, it could be one where the parents are really disagree about how to manage the behaviour of a child. In the workplace situation, it could be where um, a line manager is, is asking somebody to do something that's Either they're not competent competent to do, or they're not confident to do, or it is out of kilter, out of uh, out of synchrony with their values, and so it produces a strong emotional reaction. Yeah, no, I'd agree. I think one of the things that's really helpful to to, to grasp in this is that often we have believed that we have a choice when we're faced with a difficult situation, whether it's like you said, you know, two parents disagreeing over how to manage a child or at the workplace or all kinds of, of difficult situations where we've kind of been triggered into that sort of state where we, we recognise there's a lot at stake and we our emotions are running high. I think it's to remember that um, we do actually have a have a choice, whereas I think we can 
think that we we either are honest or we save the relationship. And so sometimes we don't have that crucial conversation because we think, okay, well, I want to save the relationship, so I won't be honest. Or we actually think, well, if I'm honest, I'm going to lose the relationship. And so we we think that we it's an either or, whereas actually the concept behind crucial conversations is to recognise how can we both be honest and save the relationship, or at least you know, really kind of protect and hopefully um, build the relationship through this crucial conversation? What do you think? I think that sounds really interesting. And what it makes me reflect for a moment is that so often when there's a problem that arises, we think we need to fix it by sorting out the other person. But I suggest I'm, I'm sort of hearing that part of it is taking our own ownership, uh, our ownership for our own issues and for understanding where we are first um, in order to then understand the other person's perspective and point of view. I think that's really true, isn't it? It's about, um, you know, what can we control and influence? Another of Stephen Covey's seven principles, isn't it? You know, what can we control? What can we influence? We can't control other people. We can't change them. We can't um, you know, insist that they think or act or, or say in a, things in a certain way. We can only control and change ourselves. So it does start with us, doesn't it? It starts with us and, and actually what's in our hearts, like what's really important to us about something and recognising that and having that self-awareness and then managing the way that we then communicate um, is, I think, really key. So there's something about listening to our heart, but how do we how do we realise when we're not listening to our heart? Um, I read in the book something about silence and violence that, that can mm -hmm. be out of balance patterns. Yeah, I read that too. The way I took that was that sometimes we can actually sabotage a conversation by resorting to silence or violence. So if a conversation isn't going well, um, we either can give somebody the silent treatment, you know, sort of just stop talking to them, shut them down or sort of sulk in a passive aggressive, slightly emotionally immature way, but we've all done it. Or we can resort to violence and hopefully not physical violence, but of course, you know, that can happen in, in conversations that are not going well and escalate, can't they? And of course we need to make sure we're safe, but but we can also resort to verbal violence as well. You know, name calling, um, put down, sarcasm even. So I think where I understood the silence trying to not resort to silence or violence is because we want to have better ways of communicating and not going down those those routes. So I think that's also what this is all about, is when our default patterns might have been to resort to one of those, it's the fight or flight, really, isn't it, that people have, will have heard about. Instead, we want to stay in dialogue with the other person by making it safe and by them being honest. So again, it comes back to wanting to be honest and also keep the relationship. So in order to do that, we want to be able to speak truthfully, but also convey a lot of respect. And we need to have respect for ourselves first, don't we? And we also need to have and hold that respect for the other person. So we need to have respect for ourselves. We need to notice how we are and we need to feel safe in ourselves. And then when we feel safe and we can help the other person feel safe, um, there can be a, a dialogue. Uh, and from that dialogue, from that that place of containment in the Solihull Triangle, we can move to reciprocity, to a, to a, to a discussion, and then we can uh, move to behavioural management. But how do we notice when safety is at risk and what, what issues can threaten safety? Because in conversations, not, uh, it's not always true that both people feel safe. No, it's not. And I think, again, it comes back to what we can control. So 
recognizing yeah recognizing how we can i suppose make someone feel safe by our body language um our tone of voice our facial expression so creating that sort of safety in terms of approachability um and conveying respect conveying empathy and we do a lot of that with our facial expressions not just the words we use and I think it's also noticing when someone isn't safe so the sorts of things that would give me those clues are when someone gets defensive so when someone immediately comes back with a defensive response then to me that's that means that they feel a bit attacked by what I've said and um therefore they're triggered into that fight or flight kind of um, space so if I if I picked up on a defensive response or or maybe they attack back with you know a push back on me sort of blaming me for for the issue that I'm raising I would probably want to stop a second and just say oh let me just make sure I think you're hearing me say this actually what I'm meaning to say is this and so I'd want to clarify and, and just rephrase and and take responsibility for that that actually it's my job to it's not my job to control their response or their reaction but it's me for me to notice how they're responding and if they seem to be feeling unsafe is to stop and bring it back to a safe place by calling out what I'm seeing I think I don't know how that sounds Absolutely. And that helps establish mutual respect. And I would imagine in a crucial conversation, one of the things we're trying to to do is to move forwards over a, mm -hmm. over a difficult area. So if we can establish with the other person a, a, a purpose, which we both agree to, which, which matters to us both, then we've got to explore our goals and we've got to explore our motives. And sometimes We've been in conversations with people. We've been in situations where we haven't trusted what they're trying to get at it out of it, or we haven't trusted their motives. Would that be a time when a crucial conversation skills would be helpful? Yeah, I think so. So I suppose in those situations, it's where we sense that perhaps they're not telling us or being completely honest with us, and it might be conscious, it might be unconscious. You know, sometimes the person we're in dialogue with might not really know what their motives are or what they're trying to get out of it. So I guess if we backstep a little bit and think the purpose of a crucial conversation is to move forward, as you said, when those three things, the opinions differ, there's a lot at stake and emotions run high, move forward to a place of safety and a place of mutual respect and a place of problem solving, um, as well as maintaining that honesty and maintaining the relationship. So I think um, if we sense that the other person isn't being honest about their motivation or clear with us, then again, it's with respect, sort of saying that and saying, I'm just wondering, what is it you really want here? Or what's really important to you about this? So again, it's that seeking first to understand, isn't it? Seeking first to understand before and showing that we've understood by summarising back and just kind of checking and then giving our point. I think where conversations can often go wrong in these kind of difficult situations is when there's talking over each other, when one person refuses to listen to the other person, when um, it just results in you know results in silence or violence so I think a big part for me is going again what can I do the I can't I can't change the other person keep coming back to that but actually I can be the person who does listen at first I can be the person who seeks to understand first I can be the person who wants to make this safe and then there's the greater chance of this leading to a positive outcome I think that's the thing um not to be like the better person. It's not about that. It's not about winning or losing or anything like that. It's more just, okay, I can actually, there's things I can do for myself in terms of reframe how I'm seeing things that will actually give us, me and that other person, the greatest chance of actually coming to, yeah, to a positive outcome. And 
it does come down to, I suppose, rather than assuming negative things about the other person is checking what am I thinking? What am I telling myself? So there's a big part of the book that talks about the path to action and just putting that in a nutshell, really it's around four steps. So firstly, what are we seeing in the situation about the other person? What are we noticing? So it could be their tone of voice. It could be their words that they're speaking. It could be their behavior that they've done. So the first thing is the observation of what we're seeing in the other person. And then recognizing we tell ourselves a story about that. We jump to a conclusion usually, and it's not always a positive one. We might say, oh, they're they're just so lazy or they're so irritating or they're always doing that. So we tell ourselves a story and that then leads to how we feel, our emotional response. And it also leads to, you know, what we then do as a result. So I think what's helpful is to recognize we have a choice about what we pay attention to, that first sort of bit of observation. What are we noticing? And what's the story that we then tell ourselves? So rather than thinking and telling ourselves, oh, they, they, they're just um, they're just out to get me or they never listen to anything I say, is there another story that we could tell ourselves instead that might enable us to see the situation differently and then actually feel differently about it? And then we're likely to respond differently in that situation. So I don't know whether that makes sense in terms of unpicking our path to action that can either take us to wards silence and violence if we tell ourselves a negative story about what we're observing or it can actually take us to a place of I think greater choice and empowerment and respect so it's not to excuse the other person's behavior or to just you know to to dismiss it or to justify it but it's actually to try and have more of an open mind and be curious, I think, about what might be going on for them. That's really interesting. And the story we tell ourselves about what we see and what we observe and what we hear is influenced by the here and now and the facts and the feelings that we're observing and hearing and seeing. How much of it is a, is influenced, do you think, by our own? If I say backstory, that may sound a bit strange, but you know, I'm 65. Um, but I carry within myself an inner five-year-old and an inner 10-year-old and an inner 15-year-old and an inner 20-year-old. And I hope that some of them matured, but um, actually some of us are carrying some some childhood stuff or some baggage from the past, which which hasn't fully resolved. Is, is Do we have our own stories that can influence situations, do you think? I, I really think we do. And I think that's part of one of the... I think beauties of exploring this kind of work is that when we recognize what our typical response and reaction is in these situations when we're triggered and recognizing again that we do have a choice, we can often shed some light onto those inner stories that might be coming from a five, our inner child, our five-year-old, um, or just patterns that we've learned, things we've picked up along the way. So as an adult and recognizing okay, what do I actually really think about that situation? Or am I just jumping to conclusions, making assumptions? Is there some unconscious bias here that is playing into the way that I then respond? It's quite helpful because it can actually 
be some he- there could be some healing work in this. And the Crucial Conversations book doesn't go into that in a lot of detail. But for people who are interested, they might want to read a little bit about transactional analysis, um, Eric Byrne. Um, but also, I think I've talked on previous podcasts about um, cognitive behavioral therapy as well, which is a similar line around recognizing what we tell ourselves and where that might have come from and what's more empowering and life-giving story to be to be sort of um, considering. So I don't know, Andrew, if you were going to think of a situation, you don't have to go into any detail about it, but just think of a situation where, you know, it could trigger those into a into the need for a crucial conversation. So it might be where emotions are running high, you know, there's a lot at stake or opinions differ. And then think about, you know, what, what story you might have told yourself in the past that might have led to a, a not a helpful outcome. And then so is there I another can, story you can tell yourself again? Yes, I can I can give a sort of slightly well, I was about to say strange one, but it was very familiar to me that um I went away to boarding school aged eight and uh, the education was good, but I'm not rec- recommending for me the social experience because I was quite a mummy's boy. Uh, and um I, ever since then, um, the packing up to go away, well into my marriage, uh, and it took some years, the packing up to go away um, was uncomfortable. Uh, and and I would put it off to the last minute and I would not exactly throw a tantrum, but I, I wouldn't be quite my calm, balanced, regular self. And it took me quite a number of years to realise that this was something probably representing feelings that I, I think I've probably resolved now, but we're, we're coming from the deep past um, and patterns of behaviour. And, and another very familiar one to me was uh, uh, as a junior doctor, after qualifying, uh, I did a series of six-month jobs. Uh, and it wasn't until job number five that I realised the pattern was that for the first three or four weeks, I would be petrified. Well, not exactly petrified, but I would be um, really quite fr- frightened. Although I was a qualified doctor, the specialty would be new. I would know the what I had to do, but knowing and being practised and rehearsed and feeling comfortable with all your colleagues and staff and knowing how everything works in the particular hospital setting and ward that you are is different to knowing the theory about it. Do those ring true, Sarah, the sort of things you're yeah. talking about? I think so. I mean, those are sort of situations, aren't they, where almost you need to have a crucial conversation with yourself. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, so there might have been that inner kind of conflict of, you know, opinions differing. I can really see why those two situations, emotions would, would run strong. Well, um, the, the, the opinion in the second one would be I'm not good enough. You know, I'm yeah. a failure. I'm useless. Mm. Uh, and one would tell oneself, you know, imposter syndrome stuff that uh, that actually you didn't know anything. And it's it's quite common. I don't know whether it's common just for doctors, but it's common for quite a lot of people in life to catastrophize when one thing goes wrong. You forget the 99 things that have gone really well. You focus on the one single thing uh, and we run into all sorts of problems. Uh, And so there is something about remembering to fake it until you make it. um, But there's also something about not being over self-critical. Yes, yeah, get that balance. Yes, I think those are interesting examples, aren't they, of recognizing what how the past might have shaped your internal response that was sort of that pattern that was running at a deep level, even when you were older and you had a different way of looking at it. I guess it's also helpful to think about 
those difficult conversations, aren't they, that we may be avoiding because, as going back to what I said earlier, we're, we're concerned that we can't really be honest because we'll lose the relationship. So, you know, it might be that people listening to this can think of difficult conversations that they probably need to have with people around them, either at work or in their friends or family sort of area, um, relationships. But they're avoiding that because they're just not sure how to have that conversation. And I like the bit in the book where it says, actually, just before you worry about how to have it, just ask yourself, what do you want out of that conversation? What do you really want out of the conversation? And what don't you want? So that you get that clarity of where your sort of objective is. And that can just help you focus before you then think about how to have the conversation. I'm so glad you've mentioned that because I think one of the challenges is having a crucial conversation once you've mastered yourself and you're in a calm space, but the other person isn't. How do we take that forwards? And you've given us some of the building blocks, which is what do we want from a calm space? But how if somebody else is is in a state of frustration or, or they've gone into sulky silence, how do we help them then? Yeah, it's a really good question. So I, I've done some work as a mediator in the past. And um, so sometimes I needed to use these skills. I think that's how I got interested in this work. I didn't have great skills in terms of resolving conflict. I would tend to be the kind of person that would probably avoid conflicts if possible. And I realized I needed to develop this myself. So um, just thinking about mediation situations or just other kind of conflict conversations. And conflict is a good thing, isn't it? Because it can actually take us to that place of greater understanding. But if we're in a conversation with someone and, and they're not safe or, or they're not feeling safe, so therefore they're not perhaps being open with us or they're pushing back. I think it goes back to what I said earlier about just... Um, using empathy and seeking to understand. So I have an analogy with two snow globes. And obviously I can't, um, this, this is not, a, you've got to have an audio. Uh, uh, a video. What's the word? Video. Yeah, we haven't got video for the podcast, obviously. So just imagine you've got two snow globes. You know, those, just those just little... describe for our listeners what a snow globe yeah, is. Just, yeah, about so those little to those, um, ornaments, aren't they, that are in a globe and you shake it up and little bits of snow fall inside. It might be a picture inside there or a scene. So often they're used at Christmas time. There's a there's a scene inside there or, or uh, another winter sort of uh, scene. So imagine that you have two of these. One is representing the other person and one is yourself. And if the other person is really um, emotional charged so they're either really angry or upset imagine that little ornament shaking up and snow the flurry of snow swirling swirling around inside the globe now you can't see clearly in so you can't really see that ornamental um, little view or picture and they can't see out so if their snow globe is all churned up with emotion actually the, the best thing we need to do is keep our snow globe still because if we get sort of churned up in emotion too, then you've got two swirling snowstorms and nobody's able to sort of see in or see out. And that's what we see when conflict just escalates, isn't it? Where there's just attack and, um, you know, name calling and it just, it just spirals down. So going back to, we need to hold our own snow globe still by creating that calm space within ourselves. And then by empathizing and acknowledging the emotion of the other person, I can see how angry you are. I can see how frustrated you feel and validating their emotion. It doesn't mean we agree with their perspective or their position, but we're just validating what's going on for them. This is all part of seeking to understand. Their emotion, their snow will start to settle. And as their emotion starts to settle and they feel understood and held and listened to, 
they will then start to feel calmer in that safe space too. And what happens then is one, we can start to see in and have a greater understanding of what's going on for them. And also they can then start to see out and see what might be going on for us. Because one of the worst things we can do, and we all do it, is when one person is angry, we get angry back and we try and explain to them why they shouldn't be angry. And of course they can't hear us because they're feeling really angry. You think about the toddler having a tantrum, but also think, I mean, probably not the only one thinking about those recurrent disagreements we can have with a special other person in our lives. It's sometimes recognizing all we're doing is saying the same thing over and over again. So if we can stay calm, hold our state, enable them to calm, then once they have felt understood, they can then listen to us at that point. And that's what can make the difference. So I don't know what you think to that analogy. I think that's really helpful. And just thinking about deafness, the, they say one of the important causes of, of deafness physically is earwax, but a very, very important cause throughout all ages is being criticised or feeling under threat. Because actually what happens is the blood supply gets shut off to certain parts of the cortex and we f- flip into fight and flight mode and we just can't listen and we can't hear the other person. When one realises that conflict and anger have the potential to be transformed into creativity, then we can treat them differently. But when we're caught up in the emotion of them in the moment, it may not be easy to appreciate that. So there is something, as you say, about keeping our own snow globe um, calm and clear. And then by entrainment, the other person has a chance of, of doing that. And and uh, respecting where they are and the emotions they're feeling, and perhaps perhaps even when they're saying something to us, restating that to them so that they appreciate that we've under, we've heard and that we understand, uh, and that it's safe for them to uh, share thoughts and feelings, because effective communication happens um when we share thoughts and feelings when we're when we're prepared perhaps to be vulnerable um rather than wanting to wound another person and and sometimes i suppose we have to nudge people with um particular questions to to help them get started if they're in defensive mode Mm, but a lot of it is as you say that quality of our attention and quality of our listening and if we think back to times when we felt really angry or really upset and actually somebody has listened to us and wanted to understand how we're feeling, then actually the effect of that is that we then feel much calmer. Generally, that's the thing because we feel safe. And so it goes back to creating that safety in the interaction where we're saying to the other person, I suppose, I'll still be here. Even when you're really angry, as long as you're not hurting me, I will be here to listen. And by showing that respect, they then are likely to listen, much more likely to listen to you. And then you can get to that place of mutual problem solving, hopefully. Thank you. Before we summarise and try to put this all together, are there any other aspects of crucial conversations that we need to explore? Because I'd, I'd like us to finish up by, by saying what a crucial conversation is again and what the key points about about having one are and and as you said earlier you, you kindly sent me a copy of of the book crucial conversations by past and Grenny mcmillan and switzler and there is some great stuff in there yeah 
any other aspects? I mean, there's so much in the book. Um, it's known which bit to start. I think the bit that stood out to me when I was just rereading it again in the last few days was the CPR. Now, those of us who are clinicians talk about CPR being the cardiopulmonary resuscitation. But this was about um, understanding what conversation are you having? Is it a conversation about content? That's the C. Is it about process? Or is it about relationship? And just getting that clarity and what is the conversation that we're actually having and ensuring that you, it's about the thing that you need to have it about. So if you're a manager and you need to have conversation about actually about the process, then don't get caught up in the content. And if it's a conversation you need to have about the relationship, then stick to that and not go get caught up in the process. So it's recognizing, and the book explains it so much better than I have, but recognizing what is the conversation actually about? Or what's the conversation you need to have that's crucial about and thinking about that. Yeah. So that's, do you want to summarize up, Andrew? No, well, no, no. I was just going to pick up on that, if I may. That's really interesting because if you talk about the wrong thing, what happens is that uh, I, as a person, start feeling told off for being who I am rather than um, the relationship being highlighted or a process that I haven't done well being highlighted or a process that we need to explore together. And it's so easy in life to take things personally. And they, they always say as advice, never criticize the person comment on the behavior but don't criticize the person but as as small children and as adults with small children inside us it's so easy to take things personally and that's where it comes back perhaps to that path to action i talked about earlier isn't it if we hear that criticism and we tell ourselves a story that's very personal then obviously it leads to that defensiveness whereas if we can hear it but just think i wonder what they're actually trying to say as the story that's going in our head that can really be useful. So that's been great to have this conversation with you. Um, so to, I'd love to talk about crucial conversations because it's been so helpful for me in many ways around personal development, but also in my professional life. Um, so just to, to encourage listeners to look into that a bit more if you're interested, these crucial conversations. And, and um, yeah, do, do have a look at the book. Thank you very much indeed, Sarah. Uh, and this all came from Stephen Covey's work, Seek First to Understand and Then to Be Understood. So rather than tell people what you want them to do, let's, let's work forwards as a dialogue. Sarah, it's been a great pleasure talking to you again. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks, Andrew. And thank you, everybody who's listening. Go well. You've been listening to the Somerset Emotional Wellbeing Podcast. The show was hosted by our team of doctors, including Dr. Andrew Tresida, Dr. Peter Bagshaw, and Dr. Sarah Coop. The show was produced by Rob Hunt's Music on behalf of the NHS Somerset Integrated Care Board. <laughs>